Can you tell me what a virus hunter is? Those are people who go into remote locations typically and try and extract specimens, that is, secretions from wild animals, with the objective being to find uh, viruses that are circulating among animals. David Willman is an investigative reporter for The Post, and he has spent the last year looking into a high-stakes type of virus hunting. The virus hunting that we're putting a real emphasis on here is highly risky research involving animal-to-animal transmitted pathogens that have never crossed the line and infected human beings. There are tens of thousands of them, and uh, only a tiny, minuscule number of that cohort would ever be expected to infect a human being. But the efforts are to go out there, collect these materials, learn more about them. The goal behind all this is ambitious. If you can identify and research these unknown viruses, the kinds that circulate among animals and haven't yet made the jump to humans, maybe you can get a step ahead of a future threat to all of us. This research happens around the world, with a lot of support and money from the U.S. government. But since the coronavirus pandemic started, the risks of this kind of research have become much more apparent. What David has found through documents, through interviews with officials and experts, is that people behind the scenes have been raising red flags for a while. That despite the best intentions, this kind of virus hunting might actually be endangering the world. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Elahe Izadi. It's Monday, April 10th. Today, David's year-long investigation into the reckoning with virus research and lab safety around the world. And how even scientists who are getting a lot of money to do this work don't feel like it's safe anymore. We begin in Thailand, in a bat cave. The caves uh, typically are, you know, the, they host the insect-eating bats, which are really small little palm-sized bats. The other uh, virus hunting goes on with the bats that roost in trees, and these typically are the fruit-eating bats, much larger. The flying foxes are 16 inches long, and their wingspan is orders of magnitude greater than that. How are they actually, they get to the animals, but then what's the virus part of it? In the caves, um, there's a scraping of the guano off the floor. Uh, That's bat feces. It's also a source of DNA, uh, genetic material. So it can be scraped there. But then, you know, the real real nitty-gritty comes to handling the bats. They try to anesthetize them so they're not wriggling so fast. I mean, these bigger bats, they've got these razor-sharp fangs, and they don't like being handled. So they, they typically will try to bite you. And so to avoid potential infection, thick rubber gloves should be used. But that 
that poses some challenge for handling the vats. Anyone who's ever had to put a pair of gloves on and try and do anything, <laughs> make some minor repair. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Let alone a bat. <laughs> exactly. So that's, that's the beginning process. So David, what you're describing is how these virus hunters actually try to get the DNA from bats that contain the virus DNA. But I'm curious about why do virus hunters generally do this sort of work? Like, can you walk me through what the intention and the point is behind, for example, going into caves and going into a precarious situation, handling bats? Why do they do this sort of work? Well, virus hunting has been going on for at least a couple of decades, and there have been differing objectives. I guess the promise of virus hunting in general across the board is to better understand the pathogens that are out there and to use that information, ultimately, it is hoped, to develop a vaccine or therapeutics that could uh, stop an outbreak in its tracks and, and therefore prevent a pandemic. That is, I think, the sort of the historical uh, basis and, and to the present, the highest objective of the work. And is this also the perspective of, like, governments who are backing this sort of work? Well, the United States government has backed this work. The stated objective and hope of, let's say, the United States Agency for International Development, for instance, is that we'll get out there, we'll be very proactive, and we will predict what is going to happen, and we will prevent a pandemic from occurring. I wonder why you went on this journey to understand more about virus hunting. And was your investigation and the prompt for going down this this road for you, did it have to do with or was it connected to the COVID-19 pandemic? It certainly is connected because uh, the pandemic is the demonstration of the danger of a pathogen on the loose, circling and racing around the world that tells us we need to learn lessons here and what aspects of policy can be tightened up. I was really shocked to hear the concerns of senior figures in the U.S. Uh, scientific community. I'm talking about people with deep governmental experience themselves. Tell me about their concerns with various forms of risky research. And so my colleague Jovi Warwick and I got into this looking at broadly at risky research, but virus hunting struck us as the most dangerous of all this narrow niche of virus hunting where people are going out into remote areas and collecting specimens of genetic material from animals, principally bats, in search of viruses that are circulating only among animals. And this is, you discovered, is happening all over the world. The concerns that these scientists had, was it just about the United States or was it about the world, what was happening around the world? Well, the most productive of these activities are in, uh, you know, very uh, subtropical areas. I mean, uh, Southeast Asia, in China, uh, it goes on in Africa as well. The course of the research and the interviews kept leading to uh, new information. And it was astonishing to me to learn that senior officials in the Biden White House had privately sought, because of their great concern over these uh, ongoing U.S.-funded virus hunting activities, 
they had privately sought to halt a couple of projects that the United States Agency for International Development has just launched in the last couple of years and is still funding. And these two USAID programs uh, have been carried out overseas with the work that has been ongoing in Southeast Asia in particular. David, you you met with a scientist in Thailand, right? Can you tell me what's his name and what was he like? Turvat Hemachuda, a very understated gentleman. I'm just fascinated by the density of this city. So the city never sleeps? We were in, in the car, uh, leaving a venue in Bangkok. Did you grow up in Bangkok? Did yes, you, you did. Okay. Highly respected among his peers uh, there in Bangkok at Chulalongkorn University. He's a, uh, a, a physician, an MD, neurologist, who had training uh, in virology also at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. But also uh, he is, you know, going back uh, to 2011, 2012, helped initiate their virus hunting expeditions. He also was a leader of the group of Thai scientists that actually diagnosed the first case of COVID-19 outside of China. So in Thailand, can you tell me what Theravat told you about why he got into this research, why he went into this field, and when did he start? Yeah, he started doing this uh, sort of work uh, under uh, funding from the United States government in 2011 or so. And at that point in time, um, he didn't see it as uh, as exceptionally risky. He had been part of other uh, surveillance among animals looking for rabies. Thailand is battling to halt the spread of a rabies epidemic, which has already claimed seven lives. The disease is most often caught from a bite by an infected animal. So if animals, bats in particular, are transmitting rabies, they want to know it, they want to get on top of it. Rabies causes inflammation of the brain, and in humans is almost always fatal. So at first, uh, we thought that this is a fantastic idea. And then, you know, there was some attention associated with the work, uh, some publications. And then the United States government uh, started getting involved with funding virus hunting. And so he was well-positioned to do it and embraced it. By doing the animal uh, wildlife surveillance, we get the money Mm -hmm. supporting the center. Mm -hmm. So this is very attractive. But over time, uh, the risks started becoming, you know, more apparent to him. And ultimately, with the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic, he made a decision, well, time out. I'm seeing here that we have a pandemic, the worst pandemic the world has known in a century, and we, the scientific community, do not know what started it, what caused it. There is, there's two plausible causes. One is uh, a natural spillover from animals to humans. The other plausible cause would be a research-related accident release. And so he started, He put it all together and, and made a decision that this is too risky for us. Can you walk me through some of the risks that this scientist on the ground was witnessing? Like, what does that risk actually look like in real life? Well, there's a, there's a chain of risks, okay? So there's risk uh, at the point where the human virus hunters are intersecting with the bats. 
And you can also get a needle stick where you're, you've, you've tried to withdraw some, some secretion and then all, you know, there's some thrashing around. Oop, I got stuck. Wow. And that, that is a problem. Then you have to put the uh, genetic material, the DNA, the, these specimens, blood, uh, saliva, uh, feces, etc., into vials and then into foam containers and transport that material. So those steps there, you know, carry some risk. And of course, those uh, those coolers have to be adequately secured and stored. Then you bring it back to the laboratory, and it, it may have been put through a chemical process, uh, the specimens out in the field to inactivate the infectious material. You want to hope that works, okay? Nothing is fail-safe, but it has to work. Mm. Uh, because then you bring it back to the laboratory, you bring them to the lab, and you start either uh, studying it to find out what the genetic sequence is, uh, which is a, a lower tier of risk than work where you're actually taking the pathogen and manipulating it in a way to make it more transmissible or more virulent. There's a lot of risk there with potential aerosolization. And the other risk is when you're handling the materials or if anybody gets infected, it's called in this realm catching your experiment. So if you become infected with a virus and you, f you feel okay, you go home. You take, you take the subway home. All of a sudden, you've got a high viral load. You're getting sick. You're infected. Well, you're infected. You, you could yeah. be spreading it to other people. And so this is the chain of risk. Right. So did Dr. Tiravat witness any of these risks firsthand? And did anyone get really sick or die? Or did anything bad happen like that? His people, some of them did sustain uh, bites uh, that uh, pierced a glove and drew blood, but there were no reported uh, sicknesses from the virus hunting work. Was that the thing that sparked these deeper concerns and caused him to question the work that, that he was doing, even though it was bringing him funding and publication and accolades, I'm sure? Well, what he says is that in real time, he didn't really think it was a, a, an undue concern or risk, even, you know, the drawing of blood, <laughs> these things. But then again, the, the pandemic provided the opportunity for this reckoning. There is a, a global reckoning among a growing number of scientists that, time out, we've all been focused on the potential uh, benefits here, the things that could be so great, you know, a, 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 a population-saving vaccine or therapeutic, but we don't have those. And what we do have is constant real risk. And so I, I think it was, a, it was, a, it was an evolution of, of analysis and, and thinking. After the break, what David uncovered about the magnitude of risky research around the world and whether anyone's doing anything about it. We'll be right back. This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. 
Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial. monarchmoney.com slash podcast. David, once Dr. Tiravat started feeling like the risks of virus hunting were outweighing the benefits, what did the university he was working out of have to say about it and what he thought were risky practices? What they have to say is that they respect his decisions to do what he did and to do what he's doing, but there is no university policy proscribing uh, virus hunting. Um, so if somebody wants to get that going again, they're not going to stand in the way. So wait, in this case, though, this researcher, he's, he's, did he stop the entire project? Yes. I mean, he said, we're, we're, we're done with this. We're not going to do any more of it. Yeah, so this is absurd. I'm sorry I have to say that. Mm-hmm. Because we've been, we've been in this business for 12 years. Mm-hmm. And then keep repeating that and then doing more. And that which may cause harmful effect then we may cause a new pandemic outbreaks by this. And he reached the decision, you can call it an epiphany, that, hey, what I want to be doing, what I want to do with whatever resources that are at my disposal is lessening human suffering. And so our, our emphasis should be on those diseases that are circulating among humans and therefore threatening humans now. The other thing Turvat became concerned about were some serious uh, safety deficiencies in a neighboring lab at the university. There was a problem with a steam sterilizer called an autoclave and also with the air pressure control. It's important to distinguish that that laboratory was not associated with the virus hunting activities that Turvat had uh, supervised over the previous uh, decade or so. But... He's walked away from potentially, you know, millions and millions of dollars of funding. He says the risk just outweighs the benefits. Wow. Wow. Did you discover in your reporting whether this this example is an outlier or is this a pretty common experience? I think right now it's the exception. Mm-hmm. Um, but what really fascinated me was his uh, independently articulated basis for reaching his decision is very on par with uh, the people from the Na- from the Biden White House National Security Council and Office of Science Technology Policy, who have also decided that, you know, there were a lot of good intentions here, but now that we see what we see, the reckoning of the COVID-19 pandemic, this is too dangerous. They say this is unacceptably risky, and there's a there's a significant opportunity cost for the funding that the U.S. government is putting into those efforts. You know, you could spend $200 million on chasing animal-to-animal transmitted viruses 
that likely will never spill over, or you can spend that money for mosquito bed nets to uh, prevent malaria, which is a, a, a major concern in that region. You could do it for increased vaccination campaigns, uh, better nutrition, vitamins. Those are real things for public health uh, improvement and health that have to compete with this more unique virus honey. David, I know that you have for a long time been investigating scientific research and the government's involvement in that. Um, this is an area that you have been steeped in for a really long time. So can you can you tell me what is behind the latest push for risky virus hunting? What what prompted it? I think the the, the most recognizable impetus, believe it or not, was September 11th and the anthrax ladder attacks. We've been struck, obviously, on September the 11th, and we're being struck again. In just a week's time, we have had four confirmed cases of anthrax, all with media connections. Now to the home front and those concerns over anthrax in Florida after one man died. The U.S. House of Representatives is closing offices today until Tuesday to allow a complete sweep for traces of anthrax. That gave rise to massive spending for biodefense here in the United States. I ask you tonight to add to our future security with a major research and production effort. Billions of dollars. Guard our people against bioterrorism called Project BioShield. Something called Project BioShield and spending for, ultimately for virus hunting, but also for building these high containment laboratories. And the hope of the progenitors of those activities was, look, instead of playing catch-up, let's be proactive. Let, let's get ahead of things. So I think, I think that was the original intention, even though anthrax is not a virus, but it opened people's eyes to the damage that can be done to an economy. I mean, there were people who died from those letter attacks and, and a lot of other people who were sickened, and that's really tragic. But... The economic dislocation, I mean, the postal deliveries were completely disrupted uh, around the United States. So you can see what could happen, the fear. So I, I think that was the central impetus for the work. Can you tell us about how common this practice of virus hunting is nowadays, that this idea of like actively seeking out viruses that humans have not yet uh, been exposed to or have been infected by? What we discovered uh, is that the United States government has allocated about $400 million to this subset of research going out and looking for animal-to-animal -animal transmitted viruses. That sounds like maybe not a high number when we think about how much money is allocated to, like, defense, but $400 million to doing this sort of work. This is the first time I'm hearing this. Yeah, I mean, I think to the average person, that sounds like an awful lot of money. When you look at the, you know, just take the budget of NIH or, or the Department of Defense, I mean, it, it's barely, it's not even a ripple. And so that's part of why I think this research has not really gotten uh, more scrutiny. That's, that's a big part of it. Mm. So what we did was went in and, and scoured uh, documents from the Department of Defense, from uh, the United States Agency for International Development, and uh, added things up. 
And how is that money being used? Like, is it the U.S. running these programs around the world? It's being used to go out and reach agreements with people on the ground in these countries, in Asia and in Africa. So what the U.S. government agencies uh, have done and continue to do is establish relationships with researchers, institutions in those parts of the world. And the money pays for the people who are performing that work. It pays for the, uh, the safekeeping, we hope, of the genetic material that's being collected. It pays for the transportation back to various laboratories. Some of these samples over the years have been brought back to institutions here in the United States where they are uh, analyzed to a great extent by uh, U.S.-based researchers. If the U.S. government has been funding these programs and different different initiatives around the world, what kind of oversight exists into ensuring that not only proper protocols are being followed, but that, you know, the research doesn't get out of hand and that it doesn't become dangerous? Well, it's variable. I mean, here in the United States, there are regular inspections for higher-level biocontainment laboratories. When it comes to our government funding these activities, there's a lot of trust that the partners are conducting things in a safe and appropriate way. Now, in, in some locations where the United States government is, is putting money for specific research and laboratories, uh, the U.S. government will actually conduct inspections. What did the oversight that has been conducted reveal about any sort of, you know, poor lab conditions or things maybe not up to par or maybe some dangerous situations within these labs? Well, here in the United States, uh, laboratories that are uh, handling what are called select list pathogens, these are pathogens such as Ebola, uh, such as Marburg viruses, um, they are subject to regular inspections from the U.S. government. So what we know from the documents that have been filed with federal agencies, including the National Institutes of Health and CDC, you know, during the period of roughly 2004 to 2018, those documents uh, reveal that, that there's close to 200 serious incidents that occurred in laboratories during those years. These are incidents that were reported. And we're talking about splashes and spills of contaminated waste, bites from infected animals, lab animals that, that escape for whatever reason, and, you know, label mix-ups. Now, when we, when we look abroad, the situation is far more opaque. We don't know how many of these high-level biocontainment laboratories are operating. And we do know that the controls, the regulations, such as they may exist, uh, vary from country to country and sometimes lab to lab. These are facilities that are perennially starved, uh, not only for uh, monetary resources, but uh, for the ability to keep up the facilities in a way that safety experts say is imperative. And also there's a constant struggle to, to find and retain properly trained personnel. I mean, that's troubling in of itself, right? Yeah. There is a global standard that is promulgated by the World Health Organization. They have a biosafety manual, 
which they work very diligently to update with lessons learned, etc. And they try and get jurisdictions around the world to adopt that manual for their practices. That's distinct from enforcement. Hmm. The World Health Organization is an arm of the United Nations, which is all built on cooperation. So the WHO has no coercive regulatory authority to force any country, any other jurisdiction, to operate their labs in a certain way. One of the original aspects that we discovered with our reporting is that the U.S. National Academies of Science, Academy of Sciences, has been for over a dozen years very concerned about practices around the world because we funded all these higher-level laboratories. Wait a minute, what are the controls? So the National Academy of Sciences began holding, organizing international conferences. I got access to summaries of those conferences dating back to 2011. These were real-time witnessings from the virologists and other scientific uh, specialists who were on the ground in those countries, in those regions, consistently saying, basically, we have huge risk here, huge problems. We don't have adequate infrastructure. We don't have the money or the capability to provide the infrastructure. We don't have the properly trained personnel. And so those reports were there. Uh, It was known to uh, people in certain levels of the government. Uh, But nonetheless, the proliferation of the high-level biocontainment laboratories has continued unabated. So again, what's the difference here? The difference is we have a pandemic. There are thoughtful, well-informed scientific experts who are saying, look, it's time for a reckoning. We have observable lessons from the pandemic. We need to apply those. David, as we've been talking, I'm also thinking about how in the last couple of years, we have seen a number of scientists who have been targeted and threatened, with a lot of it fueled by misinformation and disinformation. And I wonder, is there any kind of concern that public mood and sentiment and the public's reaction to you know, even these sensitive scientific conversations, what is the impact on the scientists themselves? Will it have a chilling effect on their research? Are they, you know, keeping that public uh, perception and response in mind when they are embarking on on research? Well, I think the scientists uh, that are out there in in the field, they're going to do the work that they get paid for. So I think the pressure question is more on how is that going to impact people in the executive branch who carry out uh, these programs. And, you know, we've got a record, and we've got somewhat of a record on that. Um, It was in the fall of 2014 that the Obama administration, based on a flurry of very uh, nervous-making mishaps with U.S. scientific facilities, stepped in and imposed a moratorium, which came to be known as a pause, on this research that would be increasing the transmissibility and or the virulence, the pathogenicity of a particular virus, uh, other toxin, whatever whatever they're working with. That moratorium remained in effect with a lot of exceptions, it turned out, for 
little more than three years. And there were scientists in the field who were, you know, very upset and concerned about this because, you know, their efforts, which, you know, were undertaken with good intentions, they were very concerned that they wouldn't be able to sustain those efforts, pay for their staffs, uh, all the work they do. So, you know, it goes both ways. But I think the policymakers, that's what they struggle with, to try and strike the right balance. We know that the, the Biden administration, uh, more particularly in the White House, they are now sorting out exactly what changes to make based on the lessons observed and we hope learned from this pandemic. You know, I'm I'm just really struck by this entire conversation because you talk about there being a reckoning coming out of the coronavirus pandemic. And this work didn't prevent the pandemic. And in fact, there's this whole debate right now. Now, House Republicans held a hearing this morning trying to zero in on the origins of the COVID pandemic. So, like, let's talk a little bit about this debate, about the origins of COVID-19, whether it came from a natural spillover from animals to humans in a market, or it was leaked out of a lab, the lab leak theory. And I I know that this has been very much politicized. There have been congressional hearings about this. There have been various statements from different government entities about it. The U.S. intelligence on this is really mixed and muddled. And I do want to be careful because what we're talking about is not, you know, what the origin of COVID-19 was. Mm-hmm. But but I do think this is a natural conversation to to touch on because this work, you know, we did actually have a worldwide pandemic that, like, I think shocked everyone in terms of the toll it took. Um, and so what do we know, what do we know right now about the origins of COVID-19 and why is it that the pandemic itself served as this moment of reckoning for this specific type of work? And what role does that debate play within within this larger conversation that we're having? You know, my colleague and I, Joby Wark, our approach to this from the beginning was that, hey, we're agnostic as to what caused the pandemic. We don't know. Our role is to find out what's happened, what is happening, and what that means. So that's what we've done. And you know, the thrust of our reporting is, regardless of where you might come out on the pandemic origin question, what caused it, it's demonstrated that a pandemic potential virus, if it gets out, is devastating. Again, this is the worst pandemic that the world has seen in a century. And there's plenty of opportunities for even worse out there. So, That is what has propelled our efforts and what is propelling a lot of the scientists and other subject matter experts out there who are working so hard, most of it behind the scenes, to try and get a fair reevaluation of, wait a minute, time out, what are we doing here? Well, thank you so much for joining us and sharing all of this reporting with us. It's uh, my pleasure. It's a privilege to do the work. David Willman is an investigative reporter for The Post. Joby Warwick also contributed to this reporting. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Alana Gordon. It was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Rena Flores and David Fallis. And of course, don't forget to sign up for Martin's live event. 
It's on April 13th at 6 and I in DC, but you can also stream it online. It's with the author of the new book, Romantic Comedy, and we'll have a link to this in our show notes. I'm Elahe Izadi. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.